Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Hello, hello, hello. Episode 20, hashing it out. Today, as always, my co-host Colin is with me. Say hello, Colin. Hello, Colin. And our guest today is Casper from QuantStamp. Casper, why don't you give us a brief introduction as to who you are, how you got in the space, what QuantStamp is, and what you're solving. Hi, uh, this is Casper. I'm a senior research engineer. I work at QuantStamp. Uh, here, uh, I work on the protocol for performing uh, decentralized uh, audits for smart contracts. I also help with um, doing in-depth uh, audits uh, of smart contracts, which means that besides running the tools, we also uh, manually uh, review the code. Uh, before that, I was working at MathWorks. There's a big company that makes MATLAB and Simulink. Um, I did my uh, PhD so uh, uh, in uh, so- software engineering. I, I have a lot of background, uh, a lot of expertise in um, software uh, verification, software modeling, um, and uh, I've been interested in crypto like, for many years, but I never really got into it uh, professionally. Um, a year ago, I pulled the trigger because... Uh, my former colleagues from University of Waterloo uh, started working on QuantStamp, and I wanted to be part of this team. Ah, it's interesting. I have friends that work in the um, uh, quantum computing section of uh, University of Waterloo. Oh, small world. Yeah, and uh, I got friends all over the crypto space. So like we, we probably know a few people. I also used to work, I thought about working for, for Mathematica. So I, I'm very, like my first language, I think, was was Mathematica, if you want to call that a language, oh. right? And then I moved into other type of stuff in my my, my previous uh, dissertation type work. But uh, let's let's start with like, what is decentralized smart contract auditing? So uh, so the protocol we are building uh, uh, wants to decentralize auditing in the sense that we like to have a network of computers uh, which run um, our node software, and then the nodes they run. Um, analyzers uh, that do certain checks on smart contracts. Right now, we are focusing on predefined uh, properties. Uh, so you can, for example, check for reentrancy or for uh, transaction ordering uh, dependency uh, and so on. So uh, the, the idea is that um, if you have a de- decentralized network, basically you... Uh, eliminate a single point of failure of, uh, of doing uh, an audit. Now, uh, when we are talking about these audits or assessments, they're not exactly the same as uh, doing a manual code review. 
because if you check for a predefined set of properties, then obviously you can end up with uh, false positives, right? So something may be an issue, but it doesn't mean that it is an issue in the context that your smart contract runs. And the reason is that often, um, besides having just your contract, you have other contracts that, uh, that you're interacting with. And well, by doing purely uh, uh, um, automated audits uh, for predefined properties, you, you don't have all the you don't have all the context, and uh, that's why, you know, like the state of the art right now is that automated audits are good in the sense that they give you a quicker uh, review of the code, but they are not perfect. Uh, our goal is to improve on that to eliminate false positives and also to have a network that can run audits uh, that can take a uh, long time to compute. Because uh, underneath uh, these run servers and, like, you know, and basically they rely on solving very difficult ma mathematical problems. And that's, that's the theory. All right, man, that's, that's uh, I like that a lot. And I, I think what I, if I want to try and recapture that, it's you're using this this platform as a tool set to give you a high level view of things that everyone typically can't like that things that are easy to do within the smart contract contracting world, and showing you that you know oh here's a problem here look into it further as well as I and then you can of course there is no automated tooling that does everything in terms of security we don't have a push to secure button across the security community or in in, in any aspect whether it be decentralization world or or centralized world. And what you're doing is providing tooling for people to go in and look, spend more time looking at things that are going to be issues versus wondering whether or not they have simple things that happen to everybody. Is that a maybe decent way to put it? Yeah, uh, this is correct. And um, I also, I like uh, one thing you just mentioned, something like having push button verification tools. So actually what we are building right now is push button in the sense that we have these predefined properties that we check for. Uh, now, you know, there is, uh, there is a difference between verification and validation. So like we can do the checks for the properties. Now there is, a, there is also the question whether the smart contract does exactly what the developer intended it to do, which is the validation step. And unfortunately this part cannot be automated unless you have a formal specification of, of your requirements uh, and so on. So to be very precise here, we are doing a verification for the predefined properties that can tell you that, well, there are potential issues with this smart contract. And does that mean you're looking at the bytecode or are you looking at the, like the, the Solidity version of the bytecode? Uh, yeah, so the tools underneath, they work with the bytecode. Uh, however, source code is also useful because if you work with the bytecode, you want to report back your findings uh, to the uh, developer and the developer doesn't work with the bytecode directly, they work with the source code, so you want to uh, point to a specific line or lines of code where the issue may be. Just... You're right, they do, they do work with the byte, they, they do analyze the bytecode. Does it matter, uh, so do you so because you're working with a bytecode, you don't really care what version of compiler they're using. So if a particular exploit exists in, you know, a particular version of Sol C, um, you know, it compiles this incorrect, this vulnerability into the, into the bytecode. Um, 
will you be able to make recommendations based off of that? Would you even be able to detect something like that? Well, so um, it's so compiler does have uh, does have an impact and also VM, right? Because uh, you still need to be compatible with certain versions. Like so, like any breaking change at the bytecode level is definitely not desirable when you do an uh, analysis. Okay. Uh, and uh, so, can you can you repeat your question now? Yeah, certain certain um, vulnerabilities exist in compilers as a result of the SolC compiler having compiling to bytecode, which is got a you know the way it compiles mm -hmm. enables a vulnerability, and so a future version would fix that vulnerability. So you might want to be able to do kind of like uh, testing to make sure your old contracts are still working uh, in the new the new you know SolC that take aren't susceptible to the vulnerability that was in the context of the um, the compiler, which they were posted onto the blockchain with. Does that make sense? I see what you are saying. Yes. So basically now we are concerned with issues in the compilers themselves. So um, we we are not dealing with verification of compilers. We are just dealing with, uh, with the bytecode itself. So if there is an issue with the compiler, uh, it may slip through. Uh, you know, but it's no different than wondering about issues uh, with VM. Uh, there may be issues, you know, in the implementation versus the assumptions that were specified in the in the white paper or or whatnot. Yeah, but so I guess what my real question is: Do you give recommendations on what caused the issue? Say for instance, so, say for instance, there's a, you, you find a problem within the bytecode when you're doing your analysis or you're using you're using a tool set to do the analysis, and hmm. if you are able to see what created that bytecode via the source code and the compiler used to then compile it down into bytecode, can you give recommendations based on things you see from your analysis to how it actually got to bytecode? Um, so right now we are not doing that. Uh, I, would I would love to see that. Um, now, when you talk about recommendations, do you mean some like quick fixes in, for example, Eclipse? You know where you have your source code, uh, and then uh, you know the tooling can detect some error in the source code, and then provide the recommendation how to fix it. I think Is it was. This... I think Colin's question was more along the lines like, say I find a problem in the bytecode, and I see that you you use this source code file in this version of Sol C to then compile down into bytecode. You say, oh, this version has this particular issue. I, I should see. then switch to something else, or move up to you know, update this, and you won't have that type of issue anymore based on what that compiler used to do. If you have you have that kind of resolution, or is it something that you can even see from what you do? I see. So cross, uh, yeah. And to be honest, uh, I never considered this idea. Um, however, I know that there are some issues that are detected by the tooling, and these issues were relevant in the old versions, and in the current versions, they are not relevant. Uh, but as of now, uh, you know, we simply don't report some of the issues uh, that are no longer relevant. But uh, I do like this recommendation uh, that uh, that you just mentioned. That you know, yeah, make that makes sense. You need a baseline. Yeah. Sorry. You need a baseline. You need to basically say this is where QuantStamp is starting. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the known vulnerabilities prior to this version of Solsi. We're starting on this baseline. 
And then recommendations can't happen until after that baseline. So that's totally fine. Is uh, if, if it's a feature in the roadmap, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, it's just something that I know as a developer, like if a new, if a vulnerability is spotted in, in SolC uh, version, uh, what, what version are we on now? 0.24? Is that right? Uh, whatever. Huh? Yeah, it's 0.24. Yeah, so like let's say point twenty five comes out and it introduces a vulnerability. Your baseline's at twenty four. The vulnerability spotted in twenty five. It's patched in twenty six. Somebody compiles on twenty five and then releases, and then or even just twenty four has a vulnerability that we haven't spotted yet. And then I would like to know that hey, this this code that I have already deployed to the network is potentially vulnerable as a result of the compiler that I chose to use. Um, and uh, and that that to me is extremely useful information to get an alert on, and um, you know and to have somebody monitoring that would be like a, a great service for for me personally, um, you know. But I, I understand the need for a baseline on that. Um, so yeah, no, I was just kind of curious if that's that's where you guys were were headed because this is the thing about these smart contracts is that they exist forever once they're in the blockchain. People start interacting with them forever. And if you use an unknown vulnerability in any particular piece of software which generates the bytecode for these smart contracts and you deploy it and people start using it, that vulnerability exists forever. So you need to find a way to migrate or get, or, or get your, you know, your contracts uh, um, patched somehow, which I'm not really sure how you do right now. I mean, certain, certain paradigms of development can enable that, um, but not full, fully enable it. Um, so it's it's uh, it's just an interesting problem that I'm constantly struggling with is that when you have a regular software development lifecycle, if you've if you've posted a like Windows does this all the time, Linux does it all the time, even Mac does it. They if there's a vulnerability in your software, you can post a patch. But with these smart contracts, there's no real simple way of doing that, and um, a lot of these tools are common. So if a, if a problem exists on the tool set itself, there's no solid way to, to even recognize that issue. And some clever little hacker out there could go out there, write a script which detects that issue, and then exploit your contracts. So um, the kind of tools I'm really looking for are maintenance level tools. They're kind of like upkeep tools. They're kind of like um, alerting tools and the verification tools once so that they when I when I get it onboarded, I know that it's working at this baseline on this compiler, and it goes to the network, and mm -hmm. it's in this state. And then from then forward, I want to know if that particular state I've uploaded has any sort of issue that 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 I should be aware of as as a decentralized application developer. Um, and and this is this is the kind of stuff that uh, a, a lot of people are kind of struggling with. And I feel like this is the kind of errors that we're seeing are you know known bugs that people don't know that were in their code. Um, and, you know, business level people can't necessarily 100% even depend on one particular developer in their organization to know all this stuff. So having that hub of information, that hub that sets a baseline for your work that's been posted is just super useful. So I was kind of seeing what your roadmap was in that direction, if any. Yeah, uh, so this is great. Uh... Let me uh, give you a little bit of context, um, like where we are at right now. So what you are talking about is, like, we call it a monitoring service. So we just started working on that. Um, 
And, but this, uh, this piece of work was uh, separated from our protocol because uh, when it comes to our protocol de development, the main use case we are focusing on right now is uh, pre-deployment uh, pre uh, analysis of the contract. So uh, this is uh, uh, this is one thing. Now the monitoring service is another is another thing. So um, we even started monitoring some of the uh, contracts for certain properties, like for example that uh, the supply is more or less stable, or that it, that somebody doesn't mail you know like a huge number of uh, of tokens. Uh, but uh, overall, uh, yeah, I, I do like your suggestion a lot, and uh, I think uh, it is an important use case that uh, we should look more into. And it will bridge, you know, it, I think it will bridge this monitoring service with uh, with the network, or if you prefer, uh, this uh, this pre-deployment analysis, though, on the live contract. And, and, a, and a lot of what Colin just referred to is a lot of things that the, I guess, security community of decentralized technology are trying to figure out and build um like a part of that endeavor is like i know quantstamp is also part of this i am too the eth security or secure eth community um and we're having a, a kind of a, a workshop meeting get together in berlin before eth berlin of trying to come together with uh you know resources tools um practices and protocols of what is security in this space because it's it's kind of different in terms of what security is across like traditional architecture and mm -hmm. the and how we approach these things what we need to look for the types of tooling that colin just referred to and what you use right now is is all necessary as the as the uh i guess security expert in this space makes himself uh useful and and, and i think that's just a time like a sign of the times in that it's legit. Like the space has become legitimate enough where security people are like, "Oh shit, we need to figure out how to make sure we maintain this wealth and people have good practices on both deploying things correctly, which is what you're working on, looking at the analysis of how things are deployed from the smart contract level, and then all the tooling above that to make sure that the information coming from the blockchain to the actual end user is secure." And then, you know, monitoring services to make sure that as we upgrade things in terms of smart cracks or whatever, we do that in a good way or we even know that we need to do it in the first place. And so there's like a there's a whole landscape of things that Colin just basically explained decently on what he'd like to see as a developer. And you're like what Quantstamp is, is a part of that, of like a, a very important part of that, of making sure that you have a high level of confidence when you put something out there in the first place. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I think I, I agree with that. So uh, we want to provide tools for developers, but you know, tools are important. But uh, other than that, uh, what is also important are um, best practices. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, uh, not sure if you guys are familiar with the uh, uh, Smart Contract Security Alliance. Uh, so recently, it was uh, it was Modular and Quantstamp. Uh, we publish on the website um, some practices, uh, and they are not low-level practices that tell you, you know, how to organize uh, your functions uh, and so on. Uh, but they most they mostly talk about the whole process of um, developing a smart contract and focusing on security uh, from the beginning. Uh, and um, the reason why it is so is that. 
uh, you know, as we are doing manual audits to learn more about the code and to improve our tooling, uh, we often get we get requests, you know, like one or two days before deployment. So somebody comes to us with a big smart contract and like, hey guys, can you audit this? Because uh, <laughs> we, we need to get it out tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is not the right way uh, of thinking about security. Uh, so uh, I think that you know this uh, this uh, this whole uh, this whole collection of tools, processes, uh, best practices. This is what we need to uh, to have secure smart contracts. But then, like you mentioned, we also need uh, some services uh, to monitor post-deployment uh, health of the smart contract. And maybe even insurance, you know, because uh, even if it, uh, the contract was checked, maybe there are still some uh, some bugs and, you know, you can deal with it through the insurance where you bet that the contract is safe or you bet it is unsafe to some degree and you're willing to stake your own funds on this. Oh, wow. Now, that's a really interesting concept to me. You just perked my ears up with that because, I mean, this applies. This is like one of one of the things that's like kind of straight out of Radical Markets, that book that we keep kind of like talking about every once in a while. Uh, Eric Posner has this great book called Radical Markets. He talks about different ways of handling a more decentralized, less central planning sort of uh, way of dealing with things. And insurance is one of the one of the more centralized central planning kind of things that are out there monolithically, you know, it, it would be pretty awesome if people could pay for insurance to guarantee, you know, the, basically have auditors literally bet on the security of their contracts. Exactly. exactly. And, and they would pay those auditors uh, from an escrow, a regular amount, as long as it, lives through the lifetime that the auditor bets that it would be correct. I bet this contract will be fine forever for, I, I will put a stake on it for 12 months. I'll put a stake on it for six months, you know, <laughs> like that. Yeah. And you can have multiple auditors doing this. Um, and, and that enables like proactive auditing communities, which can be a marketplace for smart contract auditing based around this insurance model. And they can take up, uh, they can take up, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, a certain budget of, of insurance capital that is held in escrow um, until it's uh, until it's used up. And then like uh, that to me is just extremely interesting. And it really ties in a little bit more with the Git, Gitcoin bounty system we just had on last uh, this week it was released um, in that um, it's sort of a, a mechanism for assuring quality through um, through markets um, and for having features there, there's just to have features developed, but this is a bounty for quality assurance, which is just super interesting. Like, I, I love that you brought that up. That's a fantastic idea. Um, hell, I'd start getting into auditing if that were the case. Hell yeah. Um, and not only that, but if they could stake their own skin in the game, so they actually lose their own bet if there is a bug, like that, that incentivizes the, the insurance backwards. So you have bilateral skin in the game on this. That's fantastic. Like it incentivizes both sides of the equation. And yeah, that'd be super cool. Yeah. I think that's neat. Um, so I guess my question next is like, how do you differentiate Quantstamp from things like Mithril? Uh, so um, Mithril is a tool. Uh, Mithril is not a network. Uh, Mithril is a tool that uh, typically, I mean, as of now you run locally. 
the difference between Metro and, uh, and our network is that uh, Quantum uh, would like to be open to multiple tools. Uh, like technically, basically, we take the tools uh, and they are wrapped uh, and they are run in separate Docker containers. And then the node software collects the outputs from the tools. Uh, now, uh, the thing is that uh, I don't know to what degree you use uh, Metril or Oyente, uh, but uh, typically these tools, if you analyze a simple contract, they finish within seconds. However, uh, if you have a complex contract, it may take minutes or maybe tens of minutes uh, or maybe longer, of course, depending on the hardware you're running uh, the tool on. So by having the network, we'd like to provide computational resources uh, to do these analysis efficiently uh, for a complex smart contract because uh, our uh, hypothesis is that complexity of smart contracts will be growing uh, with time uh, like in a similar way as we've seen that with you know any other software you know the the more time uh, passes the more complex the software becomes uh, so but, this, but in terms of decentralized validator network, or is each node independently doing its own sort of work? And can people just join this network? Right. So uh, I can tell you how it is as of now, because right now we are finishing our second iteration of the network. We started at the beginning of the year. So in the current iteration, we will have whitelisted nodes that are assumed to, to be non-malicious. Now, in the next iteration, that will start around... Uh, uh, September would like to precisely look into the issue you just brought up because uh, in a decentralized network of course you cannot trust the nodes uh, that's the whole point of, of uh, decentralization uh, and there are multiple approaches to uh, making sure that the that the report is uh, is correct uh, and it was not uh, uh, it was not uh, changed on purpose or manipulated on purpose so we will be looking into multiple approaches, uh, and you know, a lot of them they have certain I mean, there are certain trade-offs to all, to all of these approaches. Uh, some of the approaches I like is uh, so, something similar to Truebit. Not sure if you're familiar with it. We've interviewed them. Uh, yeah, we've interviewed them, and I was actually going to suggest, hey, if you're going to do a decentralized, have you looked into Truebit? So that's great. Yeah. So Truebit is uh, is is pretty cool as a as a protocol. Uh, because you need only one node to, to provide a good result because uh, then you allow every other node to challenge this result and then uh, prove on chain who is right and, uh, and who is wrong. So, uh, you know, at least theoretically, it's, uh, I think it's very cool. Uh, of course, uh, Truebit is, uh, it needs a little bit more research to figure out the incentive structure and also verification of the results on chain is not exactly efficient. And there are some assumptions about, uh, you know, being deterministic and so on. Uh, I think it, it is a step in the right direction. We, def we definitely want to look more into it. Uh, but there are also other approaches. So uh, as of today, we are not, uh, you know, we haven't picked any single approach. We will see, we'll research, research them and we'll see which one uh, we pick. Uh, but the idea is to have, you know, these dis uh, distributed, decentralized computations and then making sure that the developer or our user will get, uh, would, will get the correct report. So, so I got something going on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> get all ambitious on me. 
Yeah. So I, 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 a part of scaling, um, as of right now, I'm assuming that your, your network is relegated to a single smart contract. Is that correct? Uh, so, uh, right now we have, um, a bunch of nodes and we have our own smart contract on the Ethereum network. And no, no, no. I mean, I mean like when you're, when you're doing an analysis, you're, you're analyzing a single smart contract, a single set of bytecode. Uh, oh yes, yes. If okay. that's what, yes. So uh, like we, part of complexity in this space, especially if we're looking into the far future is going to be a series of smart contracts that interact with each other. Do you mm-hmm. have any type of roadmap that can start to handle that type of thing? Cause I know the tooling automated tooling for this type of stuff is obviously works better if it's self-contained within a single set of bytecode. You can, you can look at that type of thing better, but, uh, as, as we scale out, especially in terms of like modularity practices and keeping things succinct and simple, the complexity or the vulnerabilities may exist in the connections between smart contracts that talk to each other. Do you have a plan on trying to uh, like deal with that attack attack surface? And to be uh, more to even ask it even more succinct than that, would it have caught the parity bug from the parity multi signature? Uh, uh, was it multi whatever that their smart contract? Like that's the that's that's an example of what Corey's talking about. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so existing tooling can find. Uh, can detect both uh, parity bugs or can tell a bug of uh, of parity, like uh, the 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 same one that happened uh, with parity. Uh, now, when it comes to uh, analyzing multiple smart contracts, uh, we can let's be slightly more precise here because um, we definitely want to uh, deal with this problem. Uh, but as everything we do, we want to deal uh, in iterations. Mm-hmm. So first, you can imagine. Uh, sound like having a travel project with which has a bunch of smart contracts you have all the code available uh so i do hope we can uh we can address this one in the you know in the next iteration uh and uh, another thing that can that is also related to analyzing multiple smart contract contracts is that uh let's say you have your uh, travel uh project but you may be interacting with some other contracts that are already deployed on the chain and whatnot. So prop uh, towards what uh, what you are saying. Cool. Sorry, you broke up on my end. Did you say you would you it it does that now, or you're working towards it? Uh, no, we are uh, we are we will be working towards it in the iteration that will start in September. Yeah, because a lot of these a lot of these contracts that were hit by the parity multi-signature bug were dependent on a library that was deployed as a singleton. Libraries are technically singletons on the um, on the on the network already. Yep. Um, so you know, there's a couple of a couple things here. You need to check that contract if it hasn't already been checked, and if it's already been checked, you need to alert them. Hey, this contract that we know is bad is being used in your code. Um, and that, that kind of stuff is like also extremely useful as, as things become more complex. So I'm glad you're working in that direction because that's, that's one of the things we need. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. And, you know, there's this whole business of dealing with dependencies, uh, and some days perhaps you want to avoid uh, recomputing, uh, you know, the same analysis and, you know, and optimizing, you know, uh, like there is like, there is still a lot of work to do there, but it's definitely some that we, we do want to address. Obviously, two things that kind of help that success is, I mean, first off, people need to understand that these tools are available. So you need some type of education that one, that they need to use them. And then 
that they're available to use. And then you have uh, like the usability aspect of like, how difficult is it to incorporate these types of things into my workflow so that I can get stuff done and I'm not spending all of my time trying to get things done while never doing anything. You have like, how, how easy is it to use this? And then what type of things are you doing in terms of like to educate people that they need to use things like this? Uh, I agree with you. I think that usability is one of the major concerns. Like, okay, first of all, I'm not sure whether there is enough education and whether uh, developers uh, are familiar with these tools. Uh, second thing, uh, basically, if you want to use these tools, what, what do you do? You go to GitHub, then you need to clone the repository. You have to compile it. You have to build it. Uh, of course, things uh, don't work out. <laughs> That's the reality. Always. <laughs> uh, some libraries, uh, whatever. Uh, but let's say you, you build the tool. Let's say you can even run it. Uh, and then you want to analyze your travel suite. Uh, suite. Well, turns out that uh, you cannot analyze one contract that has some dependencies. Maybe you need to run a flattener that uh, flattens the source code into one file. And then you can you can analyze it. Okay, that's great. So then let's see, you finally do the analysis. Let's say it finishes on time, that's unreasonable. Uh, and then you get the report. You look at the report and uh, you also need to know how to interpret the results. Uh, you need to know that a lot of, uh, a lot of the, uh, the potential bugs or vulnerabilities that are reported, they are uh, really false positives. Uh, and uh, that's that's the reality right now because these tools they don't make uh, assumptions about uh, your environment or the other contracts that you're interacting with. They they always assume the worst. So, for example, often you see some like reentrancy or assertion failure with regard with the relation to uh, the safe math library, which is pretty standard. Uh, so you need to know how to interpret the results and also relate them to the code. Also, uh, what you get from these tools right now is not exactly related to your source code. It may be shifted by 18 or 12 lines, whatever. Uh, so usability is definitely a concern because uh, uh, a lot of these tools, uh, they were created by experts. And of course, authors of these tools, they know all the quirks and uh, all the potential issues, so they know how to, how to use them. But if you're... Uh, uh, you know, let's say you are a newcomer to smart contracts solidity. Uh, I believe that uh, the experience uh, is pretty frustrating. Uh, so we, uh, you know, as a company, what we do right now. So, uh, so we do talk about the tools, uh, but we also uh, created uh, this demo version where we have a web interface to uh, that was running one of the tools specifically Oyente. Uh, and you would get the results on the on the web page, and the report would tell you what the issue is, would provide a description and, and a severity. So that was uh, you know our first attempt to slightly improve usability of these uh, of these tools, because uh, the only thing you had to do uh, was to actually submit the contract and, and wait for uh, for the result. Uh, I believe, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but uh, I, I think that uh, the Smart Security Alliance standards, either they already mentioned you, like some of the tools, maybe not explicitly by name, uh, but I think they mentioned that it is a good practice to, to run these tools. Or if not, then we should incorporate a, a paragraph like that. 
Yeah, I'm definitely, we'll definitely be working on that stuff in the upcoming workshop to see like what is currently like the, I guess the golden standard across the entire community of how to do this type of stuff and then how to put it in a spot where people can access it and, and learn from it so that they can, I mean, you could start with best practices as opposed to like learning shitty practices, having fun, and then have to unlearn all the bad things you learn to get to a point where you can actually deploy a smart contract on main network and not worry about its funds getting stolen is a better route. And in order to do that, you need to educate people on the best way to do it from the start as opposed to like, let's make a token. All right, don't ever use that token. Let's make a better token now, right? Yeah, but you know what? Uh, so let me add a little bit to, uh, to what you just said. So uh, I would say that running these tools and understanding the results requires certain expertise, um, maybe some rigor, uh, familiarity perhaps with uh, software engineering and maybe verification. Um, like something that goes beyond what you typically do when you develop software. Because when you develop software, you, maybe you have a spec, you write the code and you have tests. Uh, I mean, that's the regular, let's say, web 2.0 workflow. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there are a lot of people, I think, that who came from that background to, uh, to smart contracts. Uh, and there are also a lot of new people who maybe they don't have even software engineering background, maybe they don't know that much about uh, programming. Uh, and uh, all these uh, you know, developers, they attempt to create tokens. Uh, and believe it or not, we do get requests where we get a code of the smart contract. And even that code has nothing to do with uh, even the reasonable practices in regular software engineering. So... You know, like when I see a code like that, I don't even think that this person would ever imagine that tools like uh, Oyente or Mithril exist and they can do some analysis. So uh, it's definitely, you know, like this part I think can be addressed by education. Uh, but if some just comes to this new domain, I don't think that uh, they are even aware of these tools and I don't think that they could effectively uh, use them. Well, that's kind of the part of I don't know, permissionless decentralization. There, there would be people who try to do things that they never should, but projects that are serious. I said, like, we'll hire the people in requisite auditing to, that, that's like commensurate with the amount of value they're trying to put into these things. And no, uh, let me, I, 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 do well, I hope talk so. Like that. <laughs> yeah. so in projects like that, we, we saw, you know, code that has nothing to do with even the reasonable practices. Oh man. So that's, that's, that's the scary part is like, it's, it's, it's still, I guess maybe a sign of the times it's the wild west and people are excited about doing something. And they think if they deployed a contract on the, on the, on the main net, that it's secure because they deploy a contract on this ultra secure platform. And that's by no means the case. Uh, mm -hmm. But like, so who's the demographic of these tools? Is it the auditors that are trying to make sure people are doing things appropriately? Is it the, is it the you know, smart contract devs working for these ICOs and, and, and decentralized companies that are in charge of deploying these things? Is it, like, who do we go after to educate? Do we try and educate the masses so that people are like, hey, I wanna try some stuff on Ethereum. I wanna learn how to build a token. They get the tools to build at least like decent level practiced contracts. Like I, I'm trying to figure out because we can't reach everybody. But we don't want to be so seclusive that we only reach the select few and, and then we charge a shitload of money to, to, to render our services. Like, who do we go after and how do we do it? 
So, Can I interject here really quick? Like one of the things I'm envisioning, and I know that I'm sorry to, to cut you off, is one, one of the things I'm envisioning when I hear this stuff is that even in Web 2.0 practices, there are security experts. There are people who who specifically deal with like database security, who specifically deal with network security. And in Web 3.0, we're just adding people who are specifically deal with smart contract and decentralization, decentralized network security. Um, and to me, it seems like this is like a marriage made in heaven for something like a bounty network where you're, we can literally, I'm done with my smart contracts. I throw it over the wall, over to your network. I don't care how long it takes. I let it run overnight, but I put out, I automatically allocate bounty assets to this and I could wake up in the morning with all of my problems with proposed solutions um, and which which I could then integrate back into my my software tools like I, I feel like I feel like the target audience for security is always everyone in that everyone needs to be aware of it but there will only be so many experts and um, you know uh, interpreting all of the security rules all the time is just unreasonable expectation and inefficient use of internal company resources when developing something especially something that's handling highly secure financial transactions. And people, current financial systems have experts in financial transaction security, codes, standards, um, you know, legal aspects of it, PCI compliance. Like these are all things that there are people who specifically get certified for that. And we have millions, if not potentially billions of dollars flowing through these smart contracts. I think it's, it's gonna have to go to the way where there are experts in the field. Now, your tool is awesome in my mind because I am not an expert in the field and I'm a decentralized, I'm a product developer. I develop products and, you know, I can, I can understand like 90% of the, the, um, the security vulnerabilities that exist, but that last 10% is the one that always gets you, right? So it'd be great for me to just code up the 90, 90% and throw it over the wall and get the 10% back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, so uh, I totally agree with you. Uh, of course, we are not here to solve all of the problems of the world. Uh, our mission is to increase the profile of the standards what uh, developers can get. Um, yeah, let's not be naive and think that uh, we will solve all the problems because uh, it's not going to happen. And now, uh, uh, getting back to bug bounties, it is something that we are looking into, as there are other projects that are looking into that as well. Uh, but right now, it is uh, it is on the parking lot uh, for us because uh, you know uh, our resources are limited. And now, uh, going back to uh, Corey's question about the target audience, um, so right now. Right now, I think the target audience of all of these tools are uh, are auditors or companies that do assessment, like security assessments. Um, so I think this is how it is right now. When the usability gets improved, um, usability, ease of use, and perhaps uh, there is better education, I do hope that some of these tools, specifically push button verification tools, will find their way into the uh, developer's workflow. Now, when I, when I mean push-button verification tools, I mean the tools where you just submit the code and you get a report. You don't have to specify anything. 
Um, I kind of see and, this as like a as like an extension to something like Truffle or Embark, versus it's like you know you make your contracts and mm-hmm. then the, uh, through the build slash deployment process, it checks these things. Right, right, exactly. Uh, and again, you get you get some results. Uh, it's not perfect. It's better better than what what we have right now. Um, if you want to go one step further, you can start annotating your code with certain invariants or properties that uh, you'd like to to check, and so on. You know, it's all great in theory. Uh, we've seen that in regular software engineering. You know, uh, being discussed in the literature for decades. Uh, but in practice, developers they don't specify uh, these invariants and properties. First of all, it is difficult. Uh, so you need to have certain expertise to, because often these specifications are mathematical in their nature. Also, they don't play very well with code evolution. Um, so whenever you evolve the code, you also have to change the properties. Well, nice thing and maybe hope for smart contracts is that fortunately uh, they are not meant to evolve very often. Like the current workflow is that you write a smart contract, you deploy, and it should be running. Uh, so I, you know, I would love developers to write these uh, these uh, properties to check and invariants, but um, I'm skeptical about widespread adoption of these techniques. I think that for these techniques, uh, still the auditing businesses and uh, an expert will be the the target audience. So. Does it make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, perfect sense. Absolutely. Um, and it, it really rhymes a lot with a lot of the things we've been discussing on this program in the past. One of the things we discussed in the program in the past is a language called PACT, um, which by removing... Um, That's Kadena, right? Yeah, yes. By removing yeah. Um, uh, uh, recursion and infinite loops, mm-hmm. Um, you're able to bake formal verification into the language itself. Um, do you see QuantStamp supporting um, other languages or even uh, implementing their own kind of like language policy for some of the stuff that, 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 that you check? Or do you still see it as being mostly just for Ethereum bytecode? Byte, you know, um, how do you see the future of this going as more languages are developing, um, which challenge Solidity's uh, dominance. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm happy you mentioned uh, you mentioned Pack and Kadena. Uh, I was really impressed. Uh, I spoke uh, with them a few times. Was re- really impressed with with their work, and I really like their approach. That in that specific project, they take security seriously. So they started thinking about it uh, from from the beginning. Uh, first, by restricting the language, and then providing some support for verification. Um, I think this is definitely the right way to go. Another nice thing is that they require you to publish the code, uh, the source code, not the bytecode on, on the blockchain, mm-hmm. so that anybody can uh, can see what uh, what your software uh, is doing. Uh, getting back to your question, uh, we definitely want to support multiple blockchains. Uh, as of now, we are working with Ethereum because this is where uh, most of the business is. This is where developers uh, contract. But uh, our tools, uh, to some degree, abstract away right now and will abstract away the, the different blockchains uh, and the execution environments and analysis. Uh, 
So uh, definitely. When? I don't know. Uh, in the future. But uh, I, I cannot be more specific right now. Because uh, as, as you know, there are so many different blockchain and distributed ledger projects. It's hard to say which one is worth putting effort into because it's hard to say which one will be successful. And uh, yeah. if you're a business, you know, you're not a charity. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately not. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, one, of the, one of the things I keep bringing up is the need for a more package manager like system. In, in the way that we deal with with these code this code um, so you know I shouldn't have to wonder where the what packages are being used to even build the the code itself um, and it seems to me like really redundant to post the same virtually the same bytecode every time onto the blockchain when you know it's really the same code it's just hey this is my ICO I'm using this exact copy of this smart contract and a lot of people are just posting that smart contract over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, 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 it's a shame to me because the blockchain is permanent storage and it grows forever. So, um, yeah, that's another thing that also kind of interested me about um, PACT is that it's getting closer to that kind of vision that I have of like a reference to a package manager mm -hmm. rather than um, the full bytecode itself. Um, one other thing that I think is interesting that could actually benefit from a network like yours at some point um, is the idea of letting the network compile your code for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In other words, you set the standard on what compiler is being used. You set the standard on what, on what is an acceptable thing to be posted. Um, and then that compilation, all you do is post the source code, like maybe an IPFS reference to the source code, and then the network picks that up, does the compilation for you, along with the security assessment, bundles those things together and posts that on the chain. Um, uh, I mean, not even post that on the chain, but just gives it gives it to you so you could post that on the chain um, right now. I mean, eventually I would like to rather just see that that it's posted on the chain and the network does the compiling. Because I don't see any point in like having my own internal compiler other than for testing purposes, when really I, I just want a reference to my code and a reference to the bytecode if the bytecode is necessary for the VM. So everybody has the same thing, but that can all be stored as a reference in one IPFS file. And so like the artifact for a contract could essentially be part of the same, the same one and the same as the actual contract code, as the actual bytecode. Um, I don't know, these are just things that I'm envisioning that would improve your system if we could kind of move the talk in the direction of how like EVM is handled or UAWesome goes on in the future. Um, and how Ethereum treats code uh, differently, but um, yeah. Anyway. Sorry, so, that's me going to Jupiter. <laughs> no, no, uh, this is a good remark, and I think uh, it's good that uh, you know you mentioned Pact earlier because uh, from what I remember, they post the actual code, and uh, the code is not compiled; it is interpreted whenever uh, you execute the contract. So I think that uh, it plays very well with what you just mentioned. I think it's gzipped, like the source code's gzipped onto the source, onto the blockchain. I I would like to um Okay, so if the next iteration of your network will be permissionless, I am assuming that involves some type of token because you need to incentivize people to act with good behavior amongst the network so that and then you need to have checks and verifications that you know someone act acted poorly. How does that work? Is there a token? Why do you need it? So on and so forth. Right. Uh, so we do have a token. Even now in the permission network, uh, the 
uh, the audit nodes, they, they will be rewarded with tokens. Um, and the developers uh, who submit the smart contract to analyze, uh, they submit the payment. Uh, each node can uh, set up their own uh, minimum payment that they're willing to accept. Also, there is a certain timeout uh, for analysis because we don't want to get the network uh, DDoS. Um, so even right now, uh, developers basically pay the, the audit nodes for uh, doing the hard work of uh, doing the computations and producing the reports. Uh, so now that's the function of the token. If we go into opening up the network to making it permissionless, uh, one of the ideas we are considering is uh, having a staking mechanism uh, for the audit nodes, and perhaps verifier nodes uh, if we if we have them, so that uh, nobody is really incentivized to do malicious things to the network, but they are incentivized uh, to do uh, correct computations and earn some rewards. Um, the specifics of uh, of that will be like, we want to figure out in the in the next iteration or two. Cool. So, is there anything that we should have asked at this point that you you're really excited about uh, with your project that uh, we might have missed? Uh, well, sorry, uh, I'm still uh, your I, standard question. Well, what I'm excited <laughs> about is that we are launching this. Uh, we call it BetaNet Network. We are la launching it. Uh, Really, like within a week, we finishing, and uh, first we want to open up the network for our university partners, um, and then of course, depending how the network operates, uh, we would love to open up to uh, to other actors. So the network will still be permissioned, uh, but we will try to incorporate as many nodes as uh, as we can. Very cool. Awesome. How do people reach you in terms of like, say they want to learn more, so they would like to participate in this if they're if they're you know have the right skill set to do so. Like, where do they where do they go? Um, certainly, there is. A, uh, so we do have a website, and then I think that most of the interaction with the community uh, happens through Telegram. I believe uh, I'm guilty of not participating enough, but we have other people like Jared who are very active on uh, on the Telegram chats. And that's probably the best way of reaching out people to, uh, in, uh, in the network. All right, great. Uh, so, listeners, if you enjoyed this, click the link. Click the like button, not the link. You already clicked the link because you're listening now. Uh, share it. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your dog. Uh, subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, whatever. Uh, where you can find us both in the Bitcoin Podcast Network Firehose, which has all the shows in the Bitcoin Podcast Network, as well as uh, our, our own. So you can just want to listen to us, you can subscribe to that. And we get all the great content from the Bitcoin Podcast. Subscribe to that. Um, I guess that's it. You can find me at Core Petty on Twitter, C O R P E T T Y, and Colin on Twitter at, at Colin Couchet. That's C O L L I N C U S C E. Thanks. That's really great, Catherine. Yeah, that was, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Very, very nice. Thank you.